The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it is our custom to take a few minutes of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. 1 John 1.9 describes a basic principle of the Christian life, and that is the principle of fellowship with the Lord, that if we sin, commit any sin, whether it's a known sin, an unknown sin, whether it's a sin of cognizance or ignorance, that sin separates us from fellowship with God. God is absolute and perfect righteousness. Therefore, he cannot have fellowship with any creature that comes short of his absolute perfect standard. Though we have salvation, and at salvation all of our sins are paid for, that forms the basis for dealing with any post-salvation sins in our lives. It's interesting when you read through the writings of theologians throughout church history that one of the major problems that has confused and confounded both the great and the not-so-great has been the problem of the believer's sins after salvation. But if we realize that Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, then we know that it will not sever us from that eternal relationship with Christ. However, it will hinder our fellowship, our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. And so God has provided a recovery procedure. And just like salvation, that recovery procedure is based upon grace. If we confess... And confession is, not, is one of those terms like holiness and a few others that's been around religious circles in Christianity so long, people don't really know what it means anymore. We just use those words and bandy them about as if everybody is on the same sheet of music and knows what they mean. And they picked up a lot of uh, non-biblical baggage over the years. And confession has picked up a lot of emotive and remorseful baggage that somehow it means to... Uh, show remorse, feel sorry for our sins, impress God with the fact that we're never going to do that again. But God's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows the beginning from the end, and He knows in ten minutes you're going to commit that sin again. And you're going to commit that sin tomorrow and maybe next week and again the week after that and, and probably 337,000 more times before you are absent from the body and face-to-face -face with the Lord. So how we feel about it and our attempts to impress Him with our remorse and sorrow 
falls short. Because the issue is not how we feel. The issue is how God feels. And God has said something is a sin, and so we need to admit that to Him. And then because of what Christ did, because the sin is already paid for, we are forgiven and instantly restored to fellowship, and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So since we learn the Word of God under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and because He is the one who teaches us, we must be in right relationship to the Holy Spirit before we begin our study of His Word. So we always take time to just have a few moments of silent prayer so that, if necessary, you can privately confess your sin to God the Father and be in fellowship, and then we can move on. So before we begin, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the tremendous privilege we have to gather as a body of believers, a privilege that is ours because of your eternal plan, that from eternity past you made a perfect plan to save us, to bring us into right relationship with you exclusively on your work. And your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, came to earth, took on humanity went to the cross where he died as a substitute for our sins. He was buried, he rose again on the third day, and now is our high priest, who even now is interceding for us before your throne of grace. And Father, now as we study your word, we pray that Christ might be glorified, that as the Holy Spirit teaches us, we might be positive to what he teaches and receptive, apply it to our lives, that we may grow and mature for your glory forever and ever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we're down to about verse 20 or 21. Before we get there, you know, one of the things that I've noticed since I've been living in Connecticut is there are a number of unusual laws here. And this has been that way since the inception. For those of you who don't know this, I don't think this is still in effect, but some of you parents just might want to check this out. This has not always been the, um, should I say, pagan environment that it is today. There used to be a law in the books in, in, um, in Connecticut. Law number 13 stated, if any child or children over the age of 16 is of sufficient understanding, shall curse or smite their natural father or mother, he or they, that is the children, shall be put to death. Quote, unless it can be sufficiently testified that the parents have been very unchristianly negligent in the education of such children, or so provoke them by extreme and cruel correction that they have been forced thereunto preserve themselves from death or maiming. And then they quote Exodus 21:15 and 17 and Leviticus chapter 20, which recognizes in the Mosaic Law that that's how you were to handle disobedient, disrespectful children, is to take them out in the public square and stone them. That's why, if you've ever wondered about it, in the Ten Commandments, about the Seventh or Eighth Commandments, is honor your father and mother. And if you do that, you will have a long life. <laughs> if you ever wondered why it says that you would have a long life, you have to always interpret Scripture 
within its proper context. There was another law that also said, If any man have a stubborn and rebellious son of sufficient years and understanding, that is, sixteen years of age, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then may his father and mother, being his natural parents, lay hold on him and bring him to the magistrates assembled in court and testify unto them that their son is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey their voice in chastisement, but lives in sundry, notorious crimes. Don't you love the way they used to talk? Such a son shall be put to death. And in that, for that law, they quote Deuteronomy 21, 20, and 21. So just uh, some of you parents may want to get on the Internet and see if any of those laws are still in effect. I don't know. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. That just shows that there once was a biblical framework for living and operating up here in New England. One of the greatest uh, uh, biblical cultures ever developed or, or grew an attempt by men to develop a biblically sound educational system and government system was the Puritans. Now, we wouldn't understand. I mean, we wouldn't agree or go along with a number of points in their theology, but we must admire their attempt at any rate to try to establish a uh, society that was based upon the coherent revelation of God. It'll never work. Um, many of them were pre-mill. They weren't post-mill. They weren't necessarily trying to whitewash the devil's world like you have with certain uh, Christian activists today. They were just, uh, remember, things were much smaller then, so you had small groups of people, and they came over here in congregations, um, and they wanted to just establish a society where they were free from the interference of governmental control. And they wanted to worship God as they saw fit, and they began to just develop their uh, laws for their uh, society based upon Scripture. Of course, ultimately, they had children who weren't believers. Their children had children who weren't believers, and now you have a society that is made up of a large mixture of believers and unbelievers, and therein lies the problem. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, is, an, is a listing of the works of the flesh. Just in case you're not sure, when your sin nature is fully operational, the Word of God wants you to be clear on the issue that if you see these activities in your life, then you need to recognize that the, that the uh, Holy Spirit is not in control and you are operating on the sin nature. Now, we have a number of visitors here this morning, so I don't want you to get lost in the details. I want you to re- realize the context here. The context starts in verse 16 with the mandate, walk by means of the Spirit. This is the overall command of the modus operandi of the spiritual life of the church age. It is a day-to-day walk. Walking refers to that moment-by-moment dependence, moment-by-moment exercise of the life. And it indicates dependence, and it is then followed by the instrumental dative of pneuma for the Holy Spirit. So we translate that, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So the spiritual life of the church age is uniquely dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. What we have seen in our study of Galatians is that there were a group of believers that came in, or not believers, but they call them Judaizers, because of their emphasis on the Mosaic Law. And Paul had come into 
come into Galatia and had taught the gospel. There were many converts. They got started well, according to what Paul says in this epistle. And then Paul made his exit, stage right, and went off the scene because he was going to other places. And he was followed by these Judaizers who came along and said, Now, Paul is really a good man. He's got a great training. He really knows the Old Testament. And you ought to listen to that guy's testimony. It's remarkable. But you know, he just misses the boat on one small thing. You need to obey the Mosaic Law. And so Paul had come in and taught them that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone and that the spiritual life was uniquely the result of God the Holy Spirit. He makes this clear in Galatians 3, where at the beginning of the chapter in about verse 4, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected? And the word there should be translated matured by the flesh. Now the flesh we know is from the Greek word sarx, and it refers to the sin nature, the natural function of man apart from the Holy Spirit. If you're not operating on the Holy Spirit, then you're operating on the power of the sin nature. And throughout this epistle, we see that these two are juxtaposed to one another, as is light and darkness, grace and law. You're either in one or the other. You're not in both at the same time. So that tells us that the flesh not only produces what we call personal sin, sins, uh, mental attitude sins such as anger, hatred, vindictiveness, re- revenge motivation, jealousy, envy. Some of these are listed in the passage in, in 19 through 21. But it also produces what the Bible calls dead works. We call that human good because it's the good that is produced on the basis of pure humanity, without, on, on your soul humanity, without any dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And so these dead works are still very moral and very ethical. And there are very many believers and unbelievers who live very moral lives and good lives. They're in church every Sunday. They may be at Bible class every night of the week. They may get up and read their Bible every morning and lead the family in in family prayer and devotion and many other good things. But because they do not understand that the spiritual life is a life that is lived on the basis of the Holy Spirit, they are producing dead works. It's all just morality. You see, morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. But the Scripture teaches that the spiritual life in the church age is based upon God the Holy Spirit working in the life. And it is a life of integrity that goes far beyond the natural ability of man to produce in terms of morality. And so Paul says that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and in contrast, you certainly will not be able to carry out the desire of the sin nature. And we saw that that is constructed in such a way in the Greek, the original Greek of the New Testament, that it it will completely exclude the possibility of carrying out the desire of the flesh if you're walking by means of the Spirit. And then verses 17 and verse 17 explains the battlefield in the soul of the believer, whether you're going to operate on the sin nature or operate on the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, then if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Walking involves following somebody. It involves following the Holy Spirit. And then we'll pick up a closing metaphor in verse 25 where we have again the command, walk by means of the Spirit, 
But there it's a different Greek word. In uh, 5.16, it is peripateo. In 5.25, it is stoikeo, which has the idea of following a track, following a path, following the footsteps of somebody which are laid out before you. And, of course, those footsteps, that path, that track is the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit has revealed the Word of God through the apostles of the New Testament, prophets of the Old Testament, and that is the track that we follow. And we do that through dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And when we sin, though we are no longer walking by the Spirit, we're walking by the flesh. So this is what we have with our diagram of the top circle and bottom circle. At the instant of salvation... When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you're identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you have an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. This top circle represents that eternal relationship, and the bottom circle represents our temporal fellowship. At the instant of salvation, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but the moment we sin, we're out of fellowship, and we're in the realm the Bible calls carnality. It's from the old English uh, that described fleshliness, sarcos. Uh, operate, Sarkonos in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, operating on the sin nature. So once we sin, we violate the righteousness of God, we're out of fellowship. The only way to recover so that we can become filled with the Spirit again, Ephesians 5, 18, and start walking by means of the Spirit, is through 1 John 1, 9, the grace recovery procedure. Now that brought us up to verses 19 through 20, which enumerated these various sins. Some are sins of the flesh, some are uh, mental attitude sins, and some are, are uh, sins of the tongue or the results of sins of the tongue. And then we come to this last phrase, which is one that is so confusing for so many people. And that is that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And we came to that about two Sundays ago, and we are doing an extensive analysis of what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. And just by way of review, we have seen that it is important in biblical study to look at an entire phrase. So we're not talking about inheritance in general. We're not talking about just some vague concept of inheritance. But we're talking about inheriting the kingdom. And the kingdom here refers to the messianic kingdom. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He was the promised Messiah throughout the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David, the king of Israel, that he would have a son. He's called the greater son of David, and that this son would reign forever and ever on David's throne from Jerusalem. And so there was this anticipation in Israel that there would be a deliverer who would come, who would be a child of David, who would bring them into a glorious uh, political kingdom on the earth. They anticipated that at the first coming, but Jesus had, the, they had forgotten the principle that the cross, suffering, had to come before the crown or glorification. And Jesus came at the first advent. He offered the kingdom. They rejected his messianic claims, and so the kingdom was postponed. So we see the incarnation. I'll draw this arrow down. This is the first advent. It took place approximately four to six B.C. We don't know the exact date, but we can, from the clues in Scripture, we can come within two years of when that occurred. He began his public ministry roughly around 28 to 29 A.D. and somewhere in the vicinity of 32, 33 A.D. he was crucified. 
So you have the cross. He was crucified where he died spiritually for our sins, and then he died physically, went to the grave for three days and nights, and was resurrected, and then some uh, 40 days later ascended into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit came down as another comforter on the day of Pentecost, and that began the church age. And the church age is the age in which we now live. We do not know how long it will last, but the church age ends when Jesus comes in the clouds and those who are dead in Christ, that's all believers in this age who are dead in Christ, will be resurrected. They will meet the Lord in the clouds and then all we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up to be together with Him forever in the clouds. Just after that, not long, there's a, there's a transition period that takes place. A lot of people don't realize it. People think that the rapture begins the tribulation. But according to Daniel chapter 9, what begins that 70th week of Daniel, which is the, uh, it's not really a week, it's a seven-year period. Literally in the Hebrew it means 70 periods of seven. And the last period of seven, which is a seven-year period, is called the tribulation. And what begins that, what kicks it off, is when the Antichrist, who will not be revealed until probably this point, until the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's why all of this talk about peace treaties and Middle East peace and everything like that should cause you to sort of perk up your ears a little bit and pay attention to what's going on over there. It may or may not be relevant to this. But the Antichrist appears or will be revealed after the rapture, so don't try to figure out who it is. Okay? Don't waste your time. Don't speculate. Don't try to figure it out. The Antichrist is going to be revealed after the rapture. And at some point, probably I would say within four to six months, there will be this uh, treaty signed between the Antichrist and Israel. And that kicks off Daniel's 70th week, which is a seven-year period known as the, the tribulation. It's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And it is when the devil gets his last opportunity to try to unite mankind in one global civilization in order to establish a unified uh, satanic kingdom on the earth. And, of course, that fails. And mankind is on the brink of self-destruction when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of that tribulation. And this is called the second advent. First advent, he comes to the earth in the incarnation, undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever. Second coming, he comes in glory. This is the cross. This is the crown. He returns, defeats the enemies of the Lord at the Battle of Armageddon, which is a tremendous conflagration, which really ends a whole campaign of battles, not just one battle. And the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet are cast into the... Uh, uh, Lake of fire, or the, the devil's cast into the bottomless pit. The Antichrist and false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And all unbelievers are removed in judgment at that time so that a population consisting of 100% believers, these are the believers who trust the Lord during the tribulation, there will be, I think, hundreds of thousands of people who come to the Lord as their Savior during the tribulation and they will repopulate the earth during this 1,000-year kingdom, which is called the Millennial 
kingdom of Christ from Mili in the Latin meaning 1,000. This is the Messianic kingdom. It is a literal kingdom. Jesus Christ will rule from the literal throne of David in a literal Jerusalem on the earth. Now, the way this plays out in terms of the church, that's us. We're the church. We're called the body of Christ. We're also called the bride of Christ. We will be raptured. Those who are uh, dead in Christ first, then we who are alive and remain, and we go to heaven at this point. We do not go through the tribulation. That's why this is called a pre, meaning before, a pre-tribulation rapture. Some people believe that Christ doesn't come back until, uh, for the church until the end of the tribulation. And that is called a post-tribulation rapture. Now, I remember one, a very graphic argument for this. I'm going to get sidetracked here for a minute. I remember a very graphic illustration of this from Dr. Ryrie when I was in seminary. And I'm not going to do this, but he called three people up from the audience in chapel. And he said, okay, um, I am going to do this. Ron, you come up here. Steve, you come up here. And Diana, you come up here. I'm going to show you how this works. This is really interesting. This is really graphic. Ron, you, we're, you're going to be a church-age believer. Ron, he's got a copy of Darby he loaned me, so we'll make him a good church-age believer. He's a good dispensationalist. Steve, we're going to make you, we're just going to make you an unbeliever. You're never going to get saved. I'm sorry, but you're lost. You know, I'm going to predestine you, double predestination. I'll predestine you to lake of fire. You're never going to get saved. Diana, you're going to get saved, but you're going to be a tribulation saint. Now, this is going to be a timeline walking from this side of the podium to that side of the podium. So we're all in the church age, and we're walking along down through the time, and all of a sudden the rapture occurs. Pre-tribulation rapture. Ron, you're raptured, so you can go sit down. I'll need you back in a minute, but you can sit down for now. So now we're left with two classes of people. Now, neither of them, they're, they're both unbelievers at this point. So we're going to walk through the seven-year tribulation. Come, come on, Diana, we, we don't want to lose you. We're not going to lose you yet. Now, it's the end of the tribulation. Jesus Christ comes back in the second advent. And unbelievers are taken off the earth to judgment. Bye, Steve. (laughs) And now Diana's left. She's a tribulation saint. She still has her physical body. They're going to repopulate during the millennial kingdom. So there has to be somebody who still has a physical body and does not have an immortal resurrection body. So she can go into the millennial kingdom. She represents those tribulation saints who go into the millennial kingdom. Now let's look at this from the post-trib vantage point. Okay, let's all get back over here, get our three people. Ron's the, um, the church-age believer, Steve's the unbeliever, and Diana's tribulation believer. This is the post-trib scenario. Okay, so we're coming along, it's a church age, and all of a sudden the tribulation starts, but there's no rapture, so you don't get to get out of it this time. Okay, so now we, go, we walk through the seven years of the tribulation, and we come down here, and it's the last day. The Battle of Armageddon has started the whole campaign, And Jesus comes down, and on His way down, He raptures the church. So He's on His way down, so all believers get raptured. So you're a believer, so you get raptured. You became a believer during the tribulation, so you get raptured. And you're an unbeliever, so you go to judgment. So y'all sit down. Who's left to go into the Millennial Kingdom? Nobody. Now, isn't that a profound argument? 
You'll never forget that. There's nobody left to go into the kingdom if you have a post-trib rapture. Now, the reason all of this is important to our study is because if we're going to, in, if, if we're going to understand this phrase, inheritance of the kingdom, then we have to realize, point number one, that this is something that applies to church-age believers only. Church-age believers only. We're going to see why. And it's because they're the ones who are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. Tribulation saints do not have resurrection bodies. They are bodies that are corporeal. They're made up of flesh and blood. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that flesh and blood cannot, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus is said to have had a body of flesh and blood in the incarnation. But when His resurrection body is described... It is described as flesh and bone. It's no longer corporeal. It is incorporeal. It is immortal. Our resurrection bodies will be immortal. So at the rapture, we will get a resurrection body, and that resurrection body will be immortal. And that allows church-age believers to inherit, to be inheritors. doesn't mean they all will, but they will be in a position to inherit the kingdom. The second thing that we have learned about this is that inheriting the kingdom has something to do with ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during that thousand years of the millennial of the millennium. We will have a position of responsibility. Those tribulation saints, point number three, the tribulation saints are going to be living in the kingdom, but they will not be heirs of the kingdom. I want you to understand that's an important distinction. Now, why is that important? Let me set this up again. It's important because, for those of you who are visitors and those of you who it's a little early in the morning and you're not morning people yet, it's important because the knee-jerk reaction of most people who read the Bible and and many theologians as well, is to interpret the phrase inherit the kingdom as equivalent to gaining eternal life or entrance into heaven. And what we are saying, what I'm arguing in this whole series, is that inheriting the kingdom is not the same as salvation. One reason, one argument against that that we've seen already is that if that is true then this passage which says that if you practice any of these acts, you will not inherit the kingdom, that if you trust Christ as your Savior, and then you continue to be involved in an affair, involved in immorality, you continue to be jealous of someone, you continue to have a problem with your temper, you continue to be a little argumentative, sorry, you've lost your salvation, or you never really had it. Those are the only two options. Arminian said, you lose it, The extreme Calvinists say, you never really had it. But the Scripture is saying, but that ends up making the salvation somewhat dependent upon works. That's the problem. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So we see that there is a... The tribulation saints are going to be living in the kingdom. And point number four is that there is a distinction between 
living in the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. Now, how far does that extent does this distinction go? It goes so far as to say that there are going to be church age believers who fail to live the Christian life. They continue to live in carnality. They never utilize 1 John 1.9. They never advance in the spiritual life. They continue to operate on the sin nature as legalists, either in immoral or moral degeneracy. And when the Lord comes back at the judgment seat of Christ, they will lose rewards and they will be in the kingdom, but they will not be heirs of the kingdom. And God's plan for your life is for you to be an heir of the kingdom, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And we're examining those various passages. Now, last time, by way of review, we looked at the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19. And in Luke chapter 19, that is the story of the nobleman. And as Jesus sets that story up in Luke chapter 19, it begins in about verse 11 with the statement that the people were anticipating the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus is going to make the point in the very first verse of his explanation that the kingdom is not yet. It's not going to happen yet because he has to go away to get the kingdom. So that means that there is no way, and this is an important point, you need to make sure you understand this because it's a crucial issue in the confusion of certain theologies today, especially this new revisionistic dispensational theology coming out of Dallas Seminary. The kingdom is not, you can't go along with this idea that it's already, in some sense, here, but not fully here. It's called the already, not yet view of the kingdom. Jesus did not inaugurate it, but, and, but only partially give it. He didn't give it at all. Because in that verse, as we saw last time, in the parable, he says the nobleman is going to go away to a far country to receive the kingdom. And then he's going to come back. And so before he goes, he brings his servants. Now, the servants all represent believers because there's a difference between his servants and the citizens. At the end, the citizens all get killed. That's the unbelievers. So we're dealing with his servants. And he gives his servants, he takes um, the minas, which was worth about three months' pay, and he gives his servants each uh, the same amount. He gives them a mina, and the same amount. He says, go invest it. One guy invests it and doubles it. Another guy invests it and gets... No, one guy invests it and gets ten minus back. Another one invests it and gets five. And then the last one says, well, I was afraid. Now, that bothers some people. Why was he afraid? We should be fearful of the Lord. You know, he is, we are going to be held accountable. That's what, that's what he's saying, is I know that I'm going to be held accountable, and I, I was so afraid that I would lose it that I just didn't do anything with it. And we come up with all kinds of rationalizations for not living the spiritual life. That's just one of them. So, we examine that when Jesus comes back in the parable, when the nobleman comes back, the nobleman has a little evaluation session with his servants. And the first servant who took the one mine, invested it, and had a tenfold return, he said, well done. He verbally praises him and says, because you did good, you will rule over ten cities. This is where we pick up this idea of ruling and reigning in the kingdom with Christ, part of where we pick it up. The second one does not get verbal praise. The second one is told, who, who invests the mina, gets a fivefold re- return. He says, 
he doesn't praise him verbally, but he does say, you will reign over five cities. And then the one that, that didn't do anything with what he was given, he is condemned. He is, it's, what he had was taken from him, and he is uh, put out of the kingdom. So, I mean, he does not inherit the kingdom. He loses what he has. And so we see that the Lord denies him any reward. He denies him any praise. There is a level of denial by the Lord. He is still a slave. He doesn't lose his salvation. He will enter, but he will not inherit the kingdom. Now, if we look at the parallel passage, we're not going to take the time to do this, but if you want to, you can look at the parallel passage in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And there you'll see that the servants in the parable are given different amounts. And this indicates the fact that we all have different talents and spiritual gifts. And so the level of accountability is going to be related to that. So it's very possible that some uh, aborigine who doesn't have very much in the way of opportunity, physical opportunity or talent or education, but because he operates fully on the level of information that he can understand and is given, in other words, he takes his, his five talents and he invests them wisely. Somebody else who's given a hundred talents and just gets a five-talent return, uh, like Billy Graham or some other well-known Christian leader or some pastor, may get less in terms of rewards than some person who is obscure, nobody knows, who faithfully executes at, the, at a full level what they've been given. So there will be differentiation at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what exactly is the judgment seat of Christ? Well, point number one, we need to distinguish between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment, which is described in Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment takes place at the end of the millennium. So we'll look at our, our timeline here. We didn't have enough room, so we'll come down here and expand it. Here's the second coming of Christ. The Battle of Armageddon, the establishment of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom of Christ. At the end of that, Satan is released from the bottomless pit. And he, he comes back and he leads a revolt that is called the Gog and Magog Revolution. So of these believers, that enter tribulation saints that enter the kingdom, they are going to marry and they are going to procreate and they are going to have children. And some of their children will be believers, and some of them will reject salvation. And those who reject salvation will be deceived one more time in human history by Satan, and there will be a great revolt, and God will send down fire from heaven and destroy them. And after this, there will be the great white throne judgment, and that is for unbelievers. Unbelievers. Believers are judged at the evaluation seat of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers are judged at the end of history at the great white throne judgment. Don't confuse the two. The purpose for the great white throne judgment is condemnation of unbelievers because they lack the perfect righteousness which God requires to get into heaven. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to evaluate what believers have done with what God has given them during their life on earth. So the judgment seat of Christ is for believers. 
great white throne judgment is for unbelievers only. Point number one, judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. Point number two, great white throne judgments for unbelievers only. I don't think I made that clear. Point number three, let's look at some passages in Scripture. We don't just do theology by proof texting or grabbing Scripture to fit whatever we want to say. Now, some people do that. I always tell we're under angelic conflict. I had three groups of people who are known for doing that knock on my door yesterday morning. I better not say anything more about that. But I sent them on their ways. Third John says that you're not supposed to let false teachers come into your house or you will participate in their evil deeds with them. They did not respond well when they heard that. There are times to witness to unbelievers who are involved in cultic groups. But when they are in that kind of a situation, it is not the time to try to witness to them. I've learned that both from experience and from doctrine. Doctrine teaches you to handle it in other ways. So yesterday was an interesting morning. I kept trying to study and they kept banging on the door. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to show that there is definite biblical reasons for why we believe what we believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pick up the context. Verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, that is your material corporeal body, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that is physical death, we have a building from God that's going to be your resurrection body. Incidentally, there will be some form of an interim body that has physical sensation. How do we know that? Well, in Luke chapter 17, there's the story. It's not a parable. It's a story because there's specific names mentioned. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is a beggar. It's not the same Lazarus who was raised from the dead later on. It's Lazarus who is a beggar. And this Lazarus dies. And he's always begging outside the house of this very wealthy man. Lazarus is a believer. The wealthy man was an unbeliever. When they both died, the wealthy man went to a place in Abraham's bosom, I mean, a place in, in um, Hades called Torments, which is where the holding place for unbelievers. It's like the lake of fire, but it is not the lake of fire. It is separated in Hades at that time before the cross from par- paradise or Abraham's bosom. Lazarus is in paradise. The rich man is in torments. And there's this great span, this great gulf separating the two. But in this story, Jesus says that the rich man could see a cross and could see Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, it's hot over here. Please dip your finger in the water and put it on my tongue. Now that tells us that Lazarus has a finger. The rich man has a tongue. They're in their interim bodies. So that tells us there is an interim body. This is focusing on the resurrection body. And believers, either those who die in Christ before the rapture or those who are transformed at the rapture, don't get their resurrection body till the rapture. Instantaneously, the twinkling of an eye. 
We know that it, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, that is, because of sin and, we, and the strugglings and sufferings and adversities we face living in a fallen world with a sin nature. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. And he's not talking about physical clothes. He's not talking about running around uh, nude or naked. He was talking about the, the protection that we have through Scripture and through the divine, the problem-solving devices, other things related to that in terms of protection. In order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, He who prepared us for this very purpose, listen to that. God prepared you for this purpose, is what He is saying. And this purpose is that resurrection, what's going to happen after the rapture. That's what God is preparing us for today, is for what's going to go on after the rapture. And how well we do in living the Christian life determines what happens then. So what you do today, the decisions you and I make today, determines who and what we're going to be after the rapture. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, that is the confidence that we have because of who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the inner witness of God the Holy Spirit, We are at home in the body. We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. In other words, we prefer to be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. This is the advancing believer. He has his eyes on eternity. We groan today. We want to get away from the sin nature, the fallen world suffering, and we want to be with the Lord, but we still realize there's a plan and purpose in phase two for us on the earth. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or to be absent, to be pleasing to Him. What's the point? That's our priority is to please God. So, therefore, the highest priority in life needs to be to learn what it is that pleases the Lord. How do you learn what pleases the Lord? Well, you're not going to learn what pleases the Lord by not coming to Bible class. That's where you learn, is to hear the Word of God taught and explained. And the hard thing, we were talking about this on the way to the airport this morning, the hard thing for people to understand is that there's a level of commitment here. Is that God expects you to revolutionize your thinking, to transform your thinking. Metamorpho in Romans chapter 12 We are to be transformed by the renewing, the metamorphosis, the renewing of our mind. And that's hard work, and it's tough, and it means that a lot of things that you believe and you hold dear and that are important to you can no longer be important to you and, are, in fact, may even be wrong. And you have to be willing to look in the mirror of God's Word and be objective about that and then change. And a lot of people just don't have the courage to do that. And they want to live on the basis of arrogance and in their comfort zone. And so they show up once a week or once a month and they nod to God and give Him a little credit. And then they go about their daily life thinking that they've done something to somehow assuage God's expectations for them. 
That's not what the Apostle Paul says. I can't imagine the Apostle Paul letting anyone get off the hook with that. Paul says, our ambition is to please Him. That's our highest priority in life. It's more important than your family. It's more important than your job. It's more important than your career. I know this is going to be hard for some of you. It's more important than fishing. It's more important than anything and everything else in our life and needs to demand our absolute devotion to pleasing Him. And that begins by learning to know Him. And we only do that by His Word. And frankly, there is so much to learn that if we spent an hour, most people can't handle more than that, especially in those pews, we spent an hour every day, and we had Bible class every single day, and we went on for the next 300 years, we would just be scratching the surface of what we're supposed to be learning. That's why we have all eternity. God's omniscient. We're fine out. We're never going to be omniscient. We're going to have eternity to be learning all about God. But it begins here and now. And what we do with here and now, with it here and now, the way we have our minds transformed and our character transformed in the image of Christ now determines where we will be and what we will be doing in the millennium. And that's what has led Paul, that's the context for his statement in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is accountability. Now, I'm not talking about accountability for sin. You're always going to hear somebody come along and say, well, they're going to trot out all those things you said last week when nobody was around and and those things you do when nobody else is around and all those things that you don't want anybody to know and that embarrass you, that God's going to trot all all those horrible sins out and expose them before everybody at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's wrong. That's double jeopardy. The sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. Period. It's all done. They're never going to come up again. They're paid for. They're taken care of. They're erased. Nobody's ever going to mention them. There's not going to be any embarrassment over those sins at the judgment seat of Christ. However, there will be embarrassment over lost opportunity and failure to advance in the spiritual life. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And here we have the word in the Greek, technical term at that time, the bema. B-E-M-A. The, the bema seat of Jesus Christ. Now, the bema seat was a raised dais that was set up in a either the public square or in, a, in, in the... Um, it, it came from a 5th century B.C. usage in Athens where the uh, Athenians in the, in the assembly, that the head of the assembly, the moderator of the assembly, would sit up on this, this, uh, this dais. And that is where he executed judgment. It, later it came to refer to the uh, various uh, provincial leaders and those that were set up uh, by Rome in the provinces to to rule over the particular area. So it was the place where people would come and have their lawsuits settled, where criminals would be tried, and it is the place of evaluation and the place of judgment. 
So uh, Paul says, we must all, that is every single believer, good believer, poor believer, advancing believer, mature believer, immature believer, we must all appear. It is necessary. He uses the verb, the Greek verb dei, looks like this, D-E-I, and it is the verb of necessity. It basically means it is necessary, it is required, is probably the better translation, for it is required for that we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed. Now, this is another interesting verb in the Greek. It's the aorist middle subjunctive of komizo. K-O-M-I-Z-O. Now, an aorist subjunctive, when you have a that, in the Greek that's a hina clause, and when you take a hina plus a aorist subjunctive, that indicates purpose. And so there is a purpose for our appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word komizo is translated in New American Standard, recompense. But that's not its basic meaning. Its basic meaning is to receive something. To receive something. And here uh, we're going to receive either reward or a loss of reward. The subjunctive is the mood of potential. There are different moods in the Greek. Imperative is the mood of command. The indicative is the mood of reality. And the subjunctive is the mood of potentiality. So that recognizes there's a potential here. You have a potential. You can either receive reward or not. And it's dependent upon how you exercise your volition while you are alive on planet Earth before the rapture or before you die physically and are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. That we will receive something for our deeds and the word here for deeds is not ergon. It's not mentioned. What we find here in the original Greek is an article used as a definite or excuse me, used as a an article used as a relative pronoun meaning what, so we just translated what, and then we have the aorist active indicative of a word that we also find in Galatians 5. Proso, to practice, P-R-A-S-S-O. So the aorist tense just bundles up all of the acts that we've done on earth and looks at them as one, one act. It's an active voice, which means we're the ones who, uh, the subject of the verb performs the action and emphasizing these are the things that we did from our volition. And the indicative indicates the mood of reality. So this is in, what's in view here is that we receive recompense for what we do in reality. Now, every now and then, I used to have a, somebody call me up on the phone every now and then, want to argue with me when I was down in Houston, that uh, if somebody was saved at the age of five and they were raptured the next day, or somebody was saved at the age, they always pick a child because these are the innocent ones, you know. We forget total depravity. We also forget the sovereignty of God. 
But we always go there and we say, well, God in His omniscience would give them a reward for because He would know what they would have done. Would have done is a subjective, subjunctive mood. It's potentiality. What we have here is reality, an indicative mood. They receive reward for what they did, not for what they would have done if they had had more time. God deals with us not on the basis of coulda, woulda, shoulda, but on the basis of what we actually do in life. And there are a lot of people, you know, think about this. How many infants have died without ever reaching the age of accountability? They're not going to receive a reward because the, re- the rewards for inheriting the kingdom are for people who have endured in the struggle. That's made very clear in numerous passages, some of which we're going to get to. They just won't inherit. Now, that does not mean that they're necessarily going to be punished because God is fair. There is a, they're not going to be like the uh, loser servant who failed to do anything and loses something. It's taken away. Because they never had the opportunity to lose or gain. So they're not going to be that, there's not going to be shame at the judgment seat of Christ for them. They're just not going to have a reward. So the indicative mood indicates here the reality of what they did in actuality, not what they might have done. We receive for our deeds for what we practice, literally. That each one might receive for what he practiced in the body. Now think about what Galatians 5 said. It said that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we come back to this same important word that it is looking at uh, continuous action, not somebody who committed this sin once or a sin twice, but the practice. So it's looking at your lifestyle here. That's what's in view here. That each one may receive for what he practiced in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word for good here is the Greek agathos. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. And it means intrinsic good. Intrinsic good. Like gold has an intrinsic value. So this is divine good, that which is produced under the power of God the Holy Spirit by walking by means of the Spirit and is distinguished from kalos good, which is the good of human good. Then the other word here is phalos, the word that is translated bad. That's not the best translation. Phalos looks like this. P-H... A-U-L-O-S. Now, phalos means evil, means worthless, bad, slight, trivial, or common. Now, I kind of like the idea of worthless or trivial. Those nuances emphasize something about the fact that these might, these deeds might even be moral but they're worthless. It's not necessarily bad in the sense of sin. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't kakos. Kakos is the word for for sin, for evil in the sense of sin. This is the word phalos in the sense of deeds that are useless 
are worthless or have no value whatsoever for the spiritual life, which, which focuses on, on human good, not sin. Why? Why not sin? Remember? See if you remember. Sin was paid for at the cross by Christ. It's not going to be mentioned again. So we are going to be evaluated on the basis of what is done in our bodies. In reality, whether good of intrinsic value, divine good, or whether worthless in the sense of of human good. Now, let's turn over to one other important passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at the how this evaluation takes place, how this evaluation judgment progresses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting down in verse 10. We don't have time to pick up a lot of the context, but it does begin with Paul saying some harsh things to the Corinthian believers because they're carnal. They're living like mere men, that is, operating just like unbelievers, and they're not operating as spiritual men. And so he warns them then that this will have consequences. Even though they're a believer and they're going to be in heaven, there are going to be consequences. There is accountability for how we live our lives today. Verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, this is his function as an apostle to lay the foundation for the church, and that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture makes it very clear that salvation is not based on how good you are. It's not based on how uh, how you feel about your sins or how you feel about God. It's not based on baptism. It's not based on ritual. It's based upon the work of Christ on the cross. Faith alone in Christ alone. I laid a foundation. That's the foundation He laid. I preached the Gospel. I explained that Christ died on the cross for your sins and that by faith alone you could be saved. And another is building upon it. Other pastors came along. Apollos came along. Others came along and taught doctrine. There were a a variety of people that came through Corinth and taught doctrine. You know, Paul does not say, look, I came in and taught, and one other guy came. You never should have listened to anybody else teach doctrine. Only one person. Every couple of months or so, somebody else came through and taught up some more doctrine and they were laying other bricks and building up that foundation of developing the spiritual life of the Corinthian believers. And then he says, but let each man, each one of you, be careful how he builds upon it. Now he shifts the image a little bit. This is typical in Scripture, various places. We're going to see one next hour where there are mixed metaphors. He's going to shift the image. He laid the foundation, but you build on it. Your life is what you build on that foundation. What are you constructing on the foundation of the Gospel? With the time and talent and treasure that God's given you, what are you constructing? What sort of edifice are you putting on that foundation? And he warns that we should be careful. We need to pay attention to what we construct upon that foundation. Verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's only one starting point, and that's salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Then verse 12, 
Now, if any man builds upon the foundation, and there are various various things that you can use, various materials you can use to construct your life. What tools are you going to use? What are the basic elements? There's two groups, that which has eternal value and that which has temporal value. They're listed as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, don't try to go into the passage and figure out, well, gold is this kind of a work and silver is that kind of a work. That's pushing the analogy way beyond legitimacy. The only point here is that there are different kinds of divine good, different kinds of human good, and you're going to construct, and your whole edifice is a mix of these things. Like all our lives, we've got a mix of divine good and a mix of human good, and it's all mixed together, and there's this edifice that's our life. And then he says, each man's work will become evident. See, when you look at your life, you can't tell and I can't tell what's divine good and what's human good. Nobody else can either, and if anybody else tries, they're out of line. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. The only time it's going to be made manifest is at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the image is there's this house. Well, we've got gold, silver, and precious jewels in there, and we've got a lot of garbage that's irrelevant. So the only way to to find out what is there of value is to set the whole thing on fire. So at the judgment seat of Christ, everything is burned up. Notice it's burned up not to expose and trot out all the wood, hay, and straw. That's all burned up because it's irrelevant. What's evaluated, and the word here is dokimazo, which is a word for testing evaluation. We've seen it in James 1. And it means to evaluate something for the purpose of praise, not to evaluate something for the purpose of condemnation. So everything's burned up. And whatever is left on that foundation is what we're going to be rewarded for. Now, there are going to be some people that when that thing burns up, we're going to see there's just a beautiful golden palace there. And that's pretty much what it looked like on the earth. And other people, we're going to see what looked like a golden palace on the earth. And when it's all burned up, there's just a pile of ashes on the foundation. And there's nothing left to reward. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains after the testing, dokimazo, after the testing, he shall receive a reward. That's like the first two slaves. They received a reward to rule and reign in the kingdom. But if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. Now, he's not going to lose his salvation because whatever is burned up that's built above the foundation He still has the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He doesn't lose salvation. It says, He shall suffer loss, loss of reward, but he himself, what? But he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. This is a person who receives nothing. There is no inheritance of the kingdom. There is inheritance of eternal life, but not inheritance of the kingdom. And what will be the response at that? 1 John 2.28 states it, And now little children abide in Him. Stay in fellowship, advance to spiritual maturity. Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 
And the sad thing is that many believers, because they have not understood these things, because they've been walking not by the Spirit, but in the power of the flesh, whether living in morality or immorality, it's all going to be burned up and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now next time we'll come back and we're going to look at another very important passage I've had several questions on, and that is 2 Timothy 2:11 and following. And so we're going to connect that into inheritance and look at a couple of other passages before we move on to look at the fruit or production of the Spirit in Galatians uh, 5. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the clarity of Your Word and how precisely You have revealed to us what is going to happen in human history, what will take place in the future in our future accountability. And Father, we do pray that You would challenge us with the things that we have learned this morning, that this life is to be lived for a purpose, and that purpose is one that was determined by You in eternity past, to live for You and to glorify You, that we might demonstrate that Your your will is good and perfect and acceptable. We pray this now in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.